Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Hello, everyone, and happy December 8th, 2021. As the year winds into a close, we thank you once again uh, for joining the State of Distressed Debt edition of the Focus podcast series, uh, where, as always, we focus on the happenings in the U.S. distressed and a little bit less so this month, uh, bankruptcy venues. Uh, joining me once again uh, is our distressed, our senior distressed credit analyst, Phil Brendel, and I am, of course, uh, once again, the host, Noel Hebert. So, you know, let's just go ahead, as we always do, and just dive right in. I mean, November... Phil, uh, maybe a month that it's kind of uh, it was a little bit uh, interesting in the sense of we got our first real drawdown uh, in quite some time. Uh, you know, a little bit of volatility out of nowhere in terms of like last week or so in the wake of like the Omicron headlines and all this other stuff seemed to sort of shift sentiment a little bit. But maybe walk me through what else maybe you saw uh, in the landscape for, for your universe over the course of the month. Sure. Um, so. Yeah, so what we saw from distress supply was that it uh, was up a bit, just a bit. Um, it went from about 26, 27 billion to about 33 billion, um, which still puts it at a distress ratio that's incredibly low of 2.1% uh, of the high yield bond index that we look at, which has got about 1.5 trillion in it. Um, so and, and but interesting, it was a bad month for the names in the distressed index, the ICUS distressed index. Uh, those were the total return index was down about six percent. Um, what we saw was that with energy prices declining, you saw uh, the energy sector uh, energy distress ratio tick up. Um, but generally speaking, um, you know, I had I've been focused for probably the past year, strictly on technicals and momentum and trying because, you know, my fundamental views, uh, you know, weren't, it's, it's hard to have. Yeah, fundamentals haven't mattered for a little while yet. So, (laughs) so, so so being, uh, you know, so I kind of changed tack and was tracking technicals and we, this past six months have been, are supposed to be the rough part for credit. And really, three out of those six months, it continued to track higher, even the months that it was down. And this was probably the worst month of the six months. So here in November, we finally were down 6%. Yeah, and and for high yield more broadly, I mean, so one of the things that we saw was, you know, we didn't quite make it down 1%. We're just a little bit shy of that. Uh, And, you know, but that's the worst performance since March of last year. And it's interesting to note, I mean, because if you go back over the past couple of decades, there's only a couple of instances uh, historically where you've had a a full year where you haven't seen a drawdown of at least 1% in high yield. And this is certainly shaping up to be one of those, even though we got pretty close in November. Uh, But to your point, the place where we saw the most pain uh, was in those high DTS or those high duration time spread, i.e. more volatile names, whether it's you know, the energy names that you allude to, like a Transocean or somebody like that, or or one of your favorites, Diamond Sports, which I know we'll get into a little bit later, right? So it was sort of those volatile names, which 
sort of, I think maybe, and, and I'd love to get your view on this. I mean, I think it speaks a little bit to, uh, one, it's obviously the time of year and people are looking to lock in gains. So there is some of that, but it speaks to sort of the ever-present fragility of liquidity, I think, in the high-yield marketplace. And, and I think when you have long stretches of, of total returns like we've had, you know, people forget how quickly liquidity can evaporate in this market and everything goes suddenly quiet. Now, we've gotten some decent rebound in the early part of December, but, you know, that last week, that post-Thanksgiving week, I think sort of maybe was a, a little bit of a maybe a premature wake-up call for some folks that, hey, this is still part of the marketplace. But curious in terms of how you think about it in the sense of, you know, is this a hiccup or is this sort of maybe, is this enough to sort of wake people up? Or do you think we just sort of all go back to sleep and, and you know, the bid just comes back and we're moving on to, to new and great records or whatever? Yeah. So I, I, I thought a lot about the Omicron uh, variant that uh, I guess middle of November really kind of showed up um, and and just these COVID waves that we had with Delta and that we had the initial one. And, you know, my, my feeling, and I put this in my monthly was that although, you know, this could be really bad. And, you know, I, I do expect that, you know, we're going to continue to see COVID peaking in this country. It's no longer unprecedented. Um, And that to get the lockdowns that can really devastate an economy I don't know if we have the political appetite uh, or, you know, I think mask fatigue, uh, you know, and and uh, just being out of the office, um, people, you know, people are tired of social distancing. And and so, you know, and the political impacts, uh, you know, we saw it in our great state of New Jersey, uh, a very close election with Phil Murphy. Um, and, you know, the, certainly that that could that may have played a part. Um, but then also the big thing is uh, we've got a population that, you know, over half the people are vaccinated at this point. So, uh, you know, as much as Omicron is a, is a worry, I don't necessarily think that that's enough to kind of send the markets in a spiral again. And, you know, and hopefully it won't be. Um, so my basic. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with that. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, I think they've been very cautious about sort of how they're sort of rolling out the narrative of that. And then you've also got the court decisions, right, that are sort of pushing back against the the mandates around, you know, vaccinations and stuff like that. So you've got not only the, the social political fatigue, but you also have the legislative part of the fatigue. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see sort of where that goes. I think a slightly separate thing, I mean, I think one of the other headwinds that I think it, I'd be kind of curious in terms of your thought in, because we haven't seen it uh, in a little while is, is obviously, you know, the Federal Reserve has initiated taper, um, you know, inflation is obviously running hotter and you've still got an asset class in high yield, even though yields have pushed up, right? You're still talking negative real yields uh, when adjusting for inflation, which is pretty unprecedented <laughs> up until the recent cycle. Um, you know, but as taper comes about and if they accelerate that and then they start pulling forward, uh, you know, you know, front end rate hikes and that sort of thing, right? That Those are dynamics that certainly uh, play into the high yield market. Uh, you know, curious if you have any thoughts in terms of whether you think that's good, bad or indifferent, you know, for down spectrum distressed. It's 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 really an interesting question. I haven't thought about it too much, but I, I, I do have 
the sense that with inflation becoming more of a headline risk um, and with the Fed governors and effectively, um, you know, talking about lowering, you know, like their 2% target that they're comfortable if inflation is over that 2% target. Um, you know, I, I think the, the pendulum has swung probably to the extreme end where, you know, people are worried that we do have uh, a central bank that will actually keep inflation in check. And if that credibility is lost, um, you know, I think you'll you presumably see it in the long end first. And, uh, you know, that, that that certainly could weigh on equities as well. Um, now everyone's still talking about how it's going, you know, inflation will taper off in sometime in two, 2022. Um, you know, but these things have a way of being sticky. You know, when your pizza place increases prices because they complain about supplies, are they actually lowering the prices again when the supply prices go down? Unlikely. So, you know, it, it's it's one of those things that inflation, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily easy to figure out. Um, I do think that that's a, a significant headwind on the horizon, just rates increasing in general, because that's, you know, that's been fantastic for the equity markets and the equity markets are a source of cash that's, uh, you know, has kept, you know, a lot of these distressed credits, particularly AMC and, you know, uh, they actually delevered during the downturn because they could access the equity markets. Um, it's Which is pretty amazing considering, you know, you basically are closed for business. Exactly. Uh, in large part, and you're still able to deliver. So it's a, it certainly is a testament to, I, I don't want to call it madness, but the enthusiasm of, of sort of the last, call it 12 to 18 months in terms of how people have participated into the equity market. So, I mean, so maybe it's before been weird we and a, humbling. What's that? It's been weird and humbling for sure. Oh yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I think the the landscape for for people that have maybe been in the business for a little bit too long, like both you and I have, right? I mean, it's it definitely it, it to your point in terms of moving away from fundamentals and thinking a little bit more about the technical aspect, right? It requires uh, some dynamism, like, and I think you know my first sort of uh, you know reality check along those lines was sort of post uh, the Great Financial Crisis, right? Which was the you know. I kept waiting for the Federal Reserve to sort of more aggressively reduce accommodation because it was so exceptional at the time that it was introduced. But it's, you know, it took me a while to accept, right, the, the five stages of grief or whatever. It took me a long time to get to acceptance that this was going to be a permanent part of our capital uh, markets going forward. And, and so now it's like, you know, it may, I don't know, we'll have to see if this ends up being a similar thing. But you know, a big market correction that washes out a lot of this uh, new, you know, mark-to-market wealth could maybe, uh, you know, alter that. But maybe let's, you know, I'd love to kind of like think about uh, 2022 a little bit, but maybe before we do that, we kind of, you know, uh, the end of the year is always a good time to look back and sort of reflect on the year that was. Obviously kind of a, a quiet universe or landscape uh, for distressed overall, not a lot of new bankruptcies, uh, but some interesting cases that sort of moved through the courts and, and sort of came about. So what do you think was sort of the the highlights of the year when you look back? Right. So 2021 uh, was no notable for the, the, the lack of new bankruptcies. 
Um, but, you know, some of the bankruptcies that we have from 2020 were really something else. And, you know, what I did was I, I looked back at some of the bankruptcies that I did a lot of work on and, you know, what were some of the key themes that, you know, I could take out of those that, you know, maybe we can apply in the future and, and, and how we think about them. And, you know, Hertz was uh, absolutely fascinating for in, in that respect. Um, and the unusual theme that I, I, I came away with from Hertz, uh, because it's it's unusual because usually people don't talk about it, but it's the equity. Um, it, it hurts, you know, no matter if you looked in the very beginning of the bankruptcy, where the company sold $29 million of shares after it filed for bankruptcy, or whether you look at the end or even right now, as I'll get into, um, the equity and the shareholders have always been kind of on an interesting ride. But, uh, you know, Hertz filed in, I guess it was May of uh, 2020, and uh, the company sold $29 million of uh, shares after it filed. 13.9 million shares went through Jefferies, and they sold them at $2.08 per share. Um if you actually bought those shares and just held them to this point today, uh, what you got back, if you didn't make any decisions, is now worth about $15 per share. So you could have had a seven and a half <laughs> bagger. From, so, so not unusual enough to actually like sell, be able to actually sell equity in a bankruptcy, right? Which I, I don't, you know, I, I kind of, Participating in the distressed market for a little while, then I followed it tangentially since. I, I can't, off the top of my head, think of selling legacy equity. Now, new equity is a different thing, but like legacy equity, it's kind of an amazing thing. And, and to think that you've actually sort of made money on that is a, is doubly interesting. Well, and, and Judge Walrath even said this has been the most fantastic result that she's seen in a bankruptcy. And the funny, and then you know the two dollars and eight cents per share they sold it after it filed. Think about it, um, Carl Icahn. I think sold it somewhere in the seventy cent range. And then even just in March of two thousand twenty-one, it hit a trading low of forty-one cents per share, and that's now worth fifteen bucks. So this this has been a true roller coaster. But you know, I I, I think so, so as we think about the shareholders here. Um, you know, the first plan of reorganization that we saw uh, in roughly March of this year gave equity nothing. And that's when it actually hit its low off of that. And the shares traded down to 41 cents. And, uh, you know, we, we actually did put out a piece speculating that equity could potentially do better if it found a strategic partner with deep pockets. Uh, and, and the basis for that was that Avis was trading at all time highs, used car prices have been up since, you know, it went into bankruptcy. And then also that uh, really there was a shortage of vehicles and the demand seemed to we hadn't seen Delta at that point and demand was kind of like off to the races. So it was an interesting play. And sure enough, uh, you know, that did play itself out. It, it wasn't what was interesting is. The debtors stuck to the knitting that we're going to get the highest value for this company because certainly there were easier deals with the unsecured note holders. But they had the auction, and that was wonderful for shareholders. They got a buck fifty-two of cash. They got 0.65 of a warrant, which is a thirty-year single-name warrant, which is just odd in its own right. 
and then they got uh, one tenth of a share. And so, you know, that that's what that's how you get the 15 bucks per share at this point. But uh, the story doesn't end there. So it exited. Um, you had investors put in four point four billion dollars of cash um, and for equity. And what's interesting is when it exited, only three percent of the actual shares outstanding were actually floating and trading just three percent. And, and, and so that that's all you saw on the on the uh, public equity side. And so you saw a price that if people wanted to buy Hertz, they had to you know, find those that 3% and the price zoomed, uh, you know, they put the new money in at $10 per share, it traded over $30 per share. And even now it's trading in the mid 20s. Um, but you know, if you take a look at how this is shaping up, Soteri's Nighthead and uh, an ad hoc group of shareholders put in a direct investment for 280 million shares at 10 bucks. And that group it filed a shelf in which they sold 44 and a half million shares at $27 and 70 cents. That was in early November. Now the, the shareholders outside Sertarius and Nighthead, they uh, have 83 million shares. Those are locked up till February 6th. And then on top of that, you have 197 million shares that Sertarius and Nighthead had. That's down to 181 million, and you know they're locked up till May 7th. So you you have these shares, you have this uh, public sh share price, but what does it really reflect? Well, there were also rights offering uh, investors, and they provided the balance of that initial 4.4 billion, and that was 1.635 billion, and that was a a potpourri of investors. It was note holders who you know, waived their make whole claims so that they could participate in this rights offering. It was shareholders who said, no, I don't want the warrants. I just want to invest in this equity. And then it was a backstop party. Um, and those shares are locked up till December 31st. So you have a lot of shares waiting on the sideline that could potentially put uh, a lot of heavy you know, and so some pressure on this stock price. But well, I mean, first of all, I want to congratulate you on using uh, potpourri. I think that probably <laughs> dates you more than anything else that uh, we've said here today. But um, you know, beyond that, it will be interesting, right? Because that is a fairly large overhang of would-be sales. You know, but the interesting thing that we've seen, right? Whether it's you know all the shares that Musk had to sell in Tesla or whatever else, but with these sort of meme type names or these names that have sort of captured the retail imagination, right? The sales haven't really dented the trajectory of the stock, right? I mean, they've, they maybe pushed the pause button or maybe led to like sort of an intermediate try down. They haven't necessarily led to long-term pain because, you know, the retail investors just sort of come flooding back in. Right. I, I mean, sort of, it will be interesting to see if you sort of multiply the available float, you know, what kind of impact that will have. Uh, but yeah, that's, it's certainly going to be something to watch. Well, Hertz is, and Hertz is really interesting. And I'm just going to go through some of the numbers here because, okay. So in through November from June to through November, only 14 million of the 473 million shares were available to trade. And there was 86.8 million warrants, but they have their own separate ticker. Um, then the company, so, so then 
they filed the shelf where they sold the 44 and a half million shares. But what they also did was they bought back shares at $29, 10.3 million shares. So they just, they, they, that's, they spent $300 million. The company did. So they're helping, they're helping support this price that the meme stock investors have basically put in now. So, so now after that 44 and a half million shares, there's now 50 million, about 50 million shares of the 463 million shares outstanding because they did buy back 10.3 million shares. Well, and, but do they retire those 10.3 or do they just keep them in the in treasury shares so they could reissue? They retired them. So, yeah. so, mm-hmm. so now they have, now, so on December 31st, that, that number will go from 50 million to 223 million shares. <laughs> and that, that, that goes a good part to explain why maybe the company also said, we're going to do a $2 billion share buyback. So yep. they're, they're taking their profits from the summer. And also they did a high yield debt issuance. So they're combining all this liquidity and they're going to basically justify this price up here. Potentially. I mean, it's 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 a it's a wild well, it's an interesting price, you know it's an interesting strategy but it also speaks to you know it's funny uh maybe not in a haha way but funnier in a more of an interesting way you know how we've seen some of the corporate suites throughout this period right the last again sort of 18 months or so where they've benefited from this again this sort of like retail rotation dynamic, right? You know, whether you're talking about, you know, AMC or these guys, right? How they've sort of embraced that in, in sort of the leadership style in terms of if you're managing for the stock price, it almost requires you to to sort of, I don't want to say throw out traditional sort of ways of leading, right? But it leads you to at least hold them in tension with sort of managing the narrative in a way that sort of supports you know, your, your new investor base. Right. Yeah. So it's really interesting. So let's, uh, I know we, we want to kind of make sure we tackle the whole call here today. I mean, uh, what, anything else sort of jump out to you from 2021 before we sort of sure. think about the year ahead? Sure. And, and so the, the, the next one I'll, I'll, I'll point out was Intel sat and this, this one just stuck out because it, 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 it's it, and this one is repeatable in a you know whereas Hertz was pretty unique this one is I, we see in a lot of these big bankruptcies and it's professional fees um this one was a whopper 350 million dollars the debtor said they paid in professional fees um and you know I, I keep pointing this out this is a theme common to highly layered capital structures you you create like 10 different hold codes you're creating special committees all over the place. You're hiring, you know, they're hiring lawyers and financial advisors. And what's fascinating about uh, IntelSet is the final exit capital structure was extremely predictable. Um, you know, it was the unsecured notes of Jackson getting most of the equity and maybe a little something to the box below it, you know, just to, 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 to make sure that you buy some piece. Um, and you know the secured debt was is is the plan is to refinance it, and there were no operational issues in the company. It's not like they had to sh- close down factories, and you know there was like this massive reason for you know nor nor liabilities. It's not like asbestos or opioids. 
And in fact, the company actually acquired a company in bankruptcy, which was somewhat unique. But it was it was the complexity that they created before it filed. And, you know, you had five special committees, five creditor groups. Um, and so, you know, you have a situation now where the converts are fighting tooth and nail to improve their $50 million recovery. But, you know, you just spent $350 million on professional fees. Now, that's the realism. That's the that's, you know, the reality of bankruptcy is that these things need to be diligence that you need to find out are, are there tax assets in Luxembourg? Are there, you know, were these guarantees released? I mean, you know, these are real questions, but it does argue that rough justice might be a better mechanism. But, you know, you also have the professionals involved. This is their industry. So, you know, you're, you're almost fighting against your own advisors, in a sense, when so, you're... So I mean, it raises an interesting question, too, right? Because one of the things that we've certainly seen a ton of um, over the last few years is increased amounts, or at least it feels like an increased share of out-of-court restructurings, right? Partly for the purpose of avoiding those fees, but... Uh, also, I guess to your point, right? I mean, you know, a lot of times the capital structures are are pretty, pretty uh, well defined, right? <laughs> You've got maybe one silo, maybe one or two silos. Uh, so, kind of running through that process out of court doesn't take a lot of finagling. You don't have to bring so many people on board. So, but, you know, and I don't know if you you would agree with that or not. But, but I guess the other question would be is, you know, the complexity. Do do we think that you know going you know, complexity always seems to be there when companies are trying to find new and creative ways to raise capital because they're they're running out of capital raising options wherever they are in their life cycle. So they've got to find new assets to secure. So they peel a piece off from X and they put it in Y and then they go raise capital off of Y. Um, I don't know that that ever changes. You know, how do you do you think there's any lessons that get learned from that? Or do you just think it's part of the natural, you know, the nature of the business? You know, I, I listen to a lot of court hearings, and one of the things that I do think is interesting is you see different styles for the judges. And, you know, it's common in the Southern De- District of Texas and Southern District of New York and, you know, even Delaware for judges to sort of give inclinations or hints of, uh, you know, which way they're le- leaning or express sig- significant skepticism at an argument someone makes. Um you know, we haven't really seen, and when they do that, that often can lead people to potentially settle very quickly because it doesn't take much. Some 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 of these judges, it, they make it so obvious that you know you, you kind of realize where you stand very quickly, and it's time to settle. However, you know, with judges and the Intel set uh, with uh, Judge Keith Phillips, it's been extremely quiet and in the court, you know, he, 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 and, you know, he lets everyone present their arguments and, um, you know, and, and many of the hearings were also sealed. So it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily all available, but what's interesting is you don't, you haven't seen much in terms of settlement. And we just had something recently over the weekend, but generally speaking, all the money's been spent on the discovery and all the fights. And, you know, it, it really, gets to, you know, you wonder, those little subtle signs actually allow um, people to go settle. And, and, and that that's, so that's an interesting nuance that you can find in different um, courts. Um, and, and so that, that's interesting. And then also 
countering Intel side, and it's a nice segue into Washington Prime Group, where uh, Strategic Value Partners made a massive bet on on the company, and that was the theme for this one was a big bet. Um, but uh, you know, I I think the most interesting thing about that one was they constantly would evaluate the op- objections that would come into court and they'd settle them. And, and so, you know, by the end of the at confirmation hearing, Judge Marvin Isger, you know, kind of pointed out this was, you know, it, it, I'll paraphrase, uh, you know, he basically said there, there weren't any contested matters before him uh, because eventually they, because they got settled. And it, this is what I call, you know, giving the squeaky wheel grease. I mean, you had ad hoc groups, you know, object. And then lo and behold, you know, there was a settlement down the road where, you know, they, they were allowed in the club. And so, you know, the things that they brought to the table that SVP brought to the table there was you a willingness to settle, willingness to put up capital and a willingness to be flexible in, in how they designed and who their, uh, you know, was going to ride in sidecar with them in on the investment. Um, and lo and behold, you know, Washington Prime Group, you know, was in and out in probably three months, whereas Intel said, you know, here we are in the middle of a contested confirmation hearing, $350 million spent. And, you know, honestly, it was kind of a obvious exit capital structure. So maybe uh, that's a, a nice opportunity to sort of, you know, turn our, our focus forward a little bit and think about, uh, you know, sort of what's on tap for 2022. Obviously, you know, distress and bankruptcy in particular is always pretty idiosyncratic, so you never know quite what you're going to get out of it. Um, but in terms of, you know, obviously we had also cycled back to sort of the reinsertion of some volatility into the marketplace like we saw in November. You know, do we have a view in terms of, I would assume bankruptcies will be more in 2022 because the, the hurdle from 2020 when is so so low, uh, but you know, do you have a sense of you know what's out there? What are you keeping an eye out for? Are there companies that sort of raise to the top of your, you know, your proverbial pile in terms of names that you worry about, or or how are you looking at the year ahead? Yeah, so the 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 two that are front and center, and you know, when I've been running my screens, you know, looking for distressed debt. Uh, you know, and I also work within the constraints that I have that, you know, basically I need public information. So there's a lot of private names that we can't necessarily analyze. But one of them is Talon Energy is clearly, you know, that's that's a private name that's, you know, been distressed. Um, but uh, the two fascinating situation, well, one fascinating situation, the other one, you know, it's got an interesting sort of uh, challenge ahead of it. Um, but the fascinating situation is Diamond Sports. Here you have a company that is part of Sinclair uh, Broadcast Group, and they have the television side of the business. Their bonds are like at tight spreads. The company's got a $2 billion market capitalization. It has cash on the balance sheet. It has cash. It has almost $500 million of cash, even in this distressed credit silo. But lo and behold, it's secured loans and notes are trading below 50 cents on the dollar. It's unsecured notes are trading 25 cents on the dollar. The debt, total debt of about $8.2 billion has a market cap uh, or has a market value of less than three and a half. Well, it's about three and a half billion at this point. 
So, you know, EBITDA is declining. And, and just to give you that, this is the company with, you know, 45, you know, 45 professional sports franchises across the NHL, NBA, and Major League Baseball. Um, they own the rights to uh, broadcast that to uh, within those regions. And right. um, the regional sport networks that they and they acquire those from like Disney and stuff like that, I think. Right. Exactly. And yeah. what's interesting about Sinclair is their strategic outlook is always centered around the, the, the gambling, the gaming. And it's really based off of these RSNs. However, whenever they're questioned on calls, you know, how does what are you how are you thinking about Diamond Sports? You, you always hear. Well, we think of them as two separate companies. So it, it's it, it, it's two sides of the mouth. But, you know, when you take a look at these and this debt has been trading down at these distress levels for such a long time. And just, you know, how does that mesh with the confidence that the company seems to have in terms of their strategic view? It, it really makes you think that they are confident that they can get a deal done, an out-of-court exchange. And they're also confident that they are that the creditors they know that the creditors are also sort of understanding the the the, the levels that are required here and i can tell you when you see first lien notes trade off to below 50 cents on the dollar it really sort of entails that whoever they're working with on the creditor side they probably have a lot of them because it looks like whoever thinks they're going to be owning the note and doesn't want to exchange and or participate or maybe isn't being allowed to participate, that new piece of paper is not going to be looking pretty. Uh, and it's going to be an extremely coercive exchange. But that's that's more to come there. I mean, that 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 seems inevitable. Um, they did avoid running into trouble on a covenant because uh, they're they're forecasting about five hundred million dollars of EBITDA, and they're getting close to like tripping up an AR receivables uh, facility covenant. Uh, they have a you know bankruptcy remote uh, subsidiary where they do all the receivables financing, uh, and Sinclair did end up purchasing that, so that was some parental support. But that would if this company ever went into Chapter Eleven, that would be taken out by a dip. So. Anyway, yeah, more yeah, to would come. There be, I mean, I guess, you know, one of the questions I would ask there, I mean, it's interesting, right? And, and obviously COVID sort of intervened. I mean, like, you know, because this thing got rolled up, you know, what was it, like late, mid or late 2019, if I'm recollecting correctly? Yes. Uh, you know, I think Third some quarter, of the notes were... 2019. Third quarter 2019. Yeah. So, you know, and then obviously, you know, you roll it up, you do it with a pretty aggressive capital structure, you know, which they can partly were able to get because of the Sinclair relationship. And then boom, COVID hits and <laughs> there are no professional sports. And, you know, now even as professional sports are returning, they, they seem to be, you know, struggling still, right? Which maybe argues that they were improperly capitalized. Is there an argument for creditors to make here, you know, that, you know, it, it, I don't, I don't know sort of what, it, you know, lens it would fall under, but that the, you know, it was always quote unquote insolvent to some degree or. I, th I think that would be a stretch, a really stretch argument to say that the company didn't know what it was doing in 2019. Yeah. So I would, I, I would dismiss it that one. That, that, that'd be a really tough one. You know, if I'm a first lien holder and in, you know, call it uh, two years, 
right? I've bled out 50% of my, the value of my position, right? You know, it speaks to sort of like, obviously this business, you know, you understand the 2020 piece, right? Just because of everything that was happening in the world. But again, I mean, like this year, you know, sports are back, live and in-person sports are back, right? But you're still in a, a very tentative position, right? So, uh, business-wise. So I, I just, I'm kind of curious if they yeah, would have so, it. So, there or they just... so thinking a little bit more, I think where you would have a lot of, you know, and, and I'll, I'll, you know, fraudulent transfers thrown around a lot by creditors as, you know, as a way to sort of get some sort of leverage and, and, and potential, you know, something to negotiate with. And one of the things that was concerning about what the company did was it paid off a preferred stock that helped them make that acquisition shortly before COVID um, was in full force. So at that point, it was already pretty clear that the numbers were going lower, that RSNs were kind of like losing their, you know, appeal. And that I think the latest payment was, I, I believe, in it was December or January, uh, January of 2020, thereabouts. So COVID had already even shown its, you know, reared its ugly head. So, you know, look, that, that all of those things are probably being discussed behind the scenes. And if it ever ends up in a bankruptcy court, we'll probably resurface in f- some form. Um, but, uh, they, they, all of these things are, uh, you know, creditors are not short of, uh, creativity when it comes to figuring out <laughs> claims. All right. So that, so that's your fascinating one. Uh, and you had another one that you're trying to find a politically correct way of saying that, uh, you know, they're a mess. Who's that? <laughs> um, well, that's Revlon and Revlon, you know, what, what's been impressive with Revlon is they really are uh, turning it around. Um, their, their, their EBITDA margins have improved. Uh, they, they had a program called the Global Growth Accelerator Program, and that has uh, reduced their structural costs. Um, and, you know, they, they, they've, their EBITDA is growing at this point. Their third quarter EBITDA was higher than 2020 and their pre-pandemic 2019. Um but all of that being said, so they're making about $300 million of EBITDA, um, their liquidity is tightening. They're losing, they lost liquidity in, in the quarter, and it's about $122 million now, $67 million of cash overseas, $53 million of availability, and a little domestic cash. And, um, you know, I, I just see this company as, you know, it's got about $3.6 billion of debt. Um, and, and, you know, as you've got sort of the, you know, the beginnings of an upturn economically and, you know, maybe some price increases will be possible with in an inflationary wave. Um, you know, I, I don't know, but for me, with the liquidity tightening and just seeing Perlman's strategy of selling other assets and, uh, you know, McAndrew Forbes is his investment vehicle that holds the Revlon equity. Right. So you're, you're talking Perlman senior, right? Yeah. So Ronald Perlman, as opposed to Deborah, who's exactly. his daughter who now runs Revlon. That's right. That's right. Years. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, you know, it, it strikes me that, you know, 
potentially, you know, uh, selling the the company probably would make the most sense. Uh, just in if if you're going to have a buyer, it's going to be kind of someone who's bought into the potential option optionality here of like uh, buying it at the beginning of an upturn. Um, but you know, the, the bottom line is, is they have to figure out some sort of liquidity situation. And if they're not going to be putting in more capital, they already have borrowed it to the extent that they're paying their first lien, first lien lenders, 12% plus a 2% pick on a billion dollars right now. So it, it's the noose is tightening. Their operations are turning around. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you put in a little capital in order to buy more time, but Really, what are you buying the time for if you've got to do something with this capital structure? And I mean, you could refinance it, but, you know, it's at the, in this in the state it's in right now. It, it'd be that that would be a hard, hard sell. Yeah, I mean, it's always been an interesting game, right, because I think in, in its earlier history and its earlier struggles in the early 2000s and whatnot. Right. I mean, Perlman would be there for sort of emergency capital on. Perlman friendly terms, right. uh, you know, but would keep this thing afloat uh, because they certainly struggled, uh, you know, in making migrations or transitions throughout their history. Uh, you know, yeah, initially we, as obviously we, we actually saw, yeah, we actually saw that just last year uh, when McAndrews Forbes bought some of the bonds and tendered them to the into an exchange. Um, and they did accomplish an exchange offer where they didn't have to pay par on, you know, a number of uh, notes. They rolled them into second lanes. So McAndrews and Forbes, is, is, that has been the playbook is like, let this whole thing look really bad. We'll buy, you know, and then we'll pro provide rescue financing late in the game. Um, however, you know, given, given maybe directionally an appetite to sell as opposed to, hold on and invest um maybe 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 something different happens here it's really yeah, unclear what are their challenges you know right i mean at least at long Bend, they were very slow to the online cave right in a year like last year obviously that proves a little bit problematic and you're really dependent upon sort of mid-market shelf space right so how much square footage are you getting at a cvs or a target or a walmart or whatever else and i think those are places where they they struggled in managing inventory. They struggled with a lot of different things over the years. Uh, but if they are sort of starting to get all those pieces together, you know, there's, you know, the Elizabeth Arden business is obviously highly cyclical around fragrances. Uh, but when it runs right, it could be very lucrative. Uh, you know, Revlon, I, I, you know, that'll be interesting, right? Because they historically, one of the problems that they've always had from the days that I used to cover them was that, you know, they would always massively under invest in marketing, right? You would look at the bigger players in the space, whether you're talking anybody from, you know, Estee Lauder to L'Oreal to even Cody, right? All spend more on marketing and all that other stuff. And that's usually where Revlon scrimped. And, you know, needless to say, that doesn't really help on your brand ID side. So, it would be interesting if they ever sort of redirected dollars in that direction, if they could rebuild some credibility. Obviously, I don't know that they have the financial capital or wherewithal to do that today. But anyway, no, that's 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 exactly it. Cash is really hard to come by, and the question it comes clearly a big investments required here by someone who believes in the company. Um, if 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 it's just 
if nothing is done, we're just going to constantly be hitting these points where, you know, inevitably. And, you know, the, 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 that big refinancing that they did in May of 2020, that was really their lifeline. Um, the five first lien, there were really five funds that made big investments at that point. Uh, and, you know, they're really going to be kind of controlling the, the purse strings here. Um, going forward, if if they have to go back to them and ask for time, money, what have you. All right. Well, a couple of things to look forward to. I think that's sort of, you uh, <laughs> I, I guess in a perverse sense, right? Because we are talking about distress. So uh, looking forward to if you actually look forward to stress and distress investing. Um, you know, I think that sort of takes us out to time, uh, you know, but it's been a great year, uh, 2021 that is. And Certainly 2022, hopefully, is you know another good year. That gives us a lot of interesting things to talk about. So uh, on behalf of myself and Phil and our, and our normal compatriot, Nikisa Baluku, who wasn't able to join us today, you know, we want to thank uh, all our listeners for spending time with us. And, uh, you know, we, we hope to speak to you all in the new year. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you.